gonna do a pre-show because i'm just sitting here anyway i thought it would take me longer to get ready after the book club and it didn't so hi how you doing you're gonna see me sweating i got two bright ass lights hitting me here i'm in a button-up long sleeve shirt that's rolled up i got a fan going but it is hot over here hot so yeah you're gonna live with that uh a little bit of pre-show i just saw a comment come through one of the videos that damn it maybe i, I think i deleted it uh but basically it was like hey greater magic is just psychodrama and not actual magic right so on the off chance that the person who asked me that question is watching i'm gonna answer you depends on who you talk to <laughs> Totally unsatisfying answer, I know, but greater magic being real or not depends entirely on who you talk to. And they could all be Satanists, and they will all have slightly different opinions on it. So it's really what whatever moves you in your own personal experience. That's going to define whether or not, first of all, greater magic should be a thing at all. Second, if greater magic is just psychodrama or if there's anything out there that it actually influences. If you're actually collecting adrenal energy and directing it towards some end and that end happens to happen, combination lock principle. Now, clearly, Anton LaVey believed in there being forces that nature is enshrouded in that science has not identified and that is what you tap into as he believes it, uh, when you perform greater magic. I happen to agree with that view of it where I have seen what I desire in the ritual chamber come to fruition. And so I admit that when I perform rituals, what I want to happen happens. So I can't deny it. It's just, it happens. So whether or not you want to attach anything to that is totally on you, but it's up to the individual. All right, um, Luana, how you doing? Good to see you, Lexi. What up? Heat index of 115 there. Holy shit. Jeff, what up? Hot there too. Glad I'm not the only one. Misery loves company, you know? Like for real. What's up, William? How you doing, man? Um, what's up, Freeth? I'm doing good. I hope you're doing good. Not you being a Satanist in a Catholic household. Most of us come from some religious background, so don't feel isolated. I would say that Catholic is probably a little bit more forgiving than some of the others. <laughs> uh, what's up, Grindelwald? How you doing? Can we just have, like, normal names? <laughs> Robert, thank you. <laughs> a normal damn name. Thank you. Uh, thanks for joining live, man. I appreciate you. Um, I don't know. You have any questions? We can just riff for a minute because we've got like 15, I don't know, just under 15 minutes before I'm going to go live. I'm already live before I turn the show on, which is a weird thing because arguably I'm still doing the show. Let me say this. I just got done with the book club and this is going to sound maybe a little bit strange because the book club is honestly, it's just a sausage. It's a satanic sausage fest. <laughs> There's more satanic cock in the book club than I've ever had <laughs> in, well, first of all, I haven't had, <laughs> but I think you know what I mean. 
than normally I'm surrounded. Usually I have you know, a little bit of a bun. This is a weird, this is not an analogy that's working out for me. Um, lots of dudes. Usually there's a girl to break up the thing. But uh, this time, book club's all dudes. Not complaining, because they're smart dudes. And we have really good conversations. Call me crazy. I, I like to see a girl from time to time. Do none of you girls read? <laughs> I know like some of the ladies in the past book clubs couldn't make it to this one for one reason or another. Which is fine. But honestly... I need something to break up the sausage fest. I really do. <laughs> it's killing me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, it's a good bunch. Um, my point of bringing that up was that I feel invigorated after every book club. Like, I feel good. I go into it going like, oh, fuck, what am I going to talk about this? Because, you know, we're reading a chapter of most of the information we've all known for a very long time. And so we're just sort of riffing on it, you know, using it, the information in that chapter as a jumping off point to other conversations and, you know, returning to it and just sort of using it as this organic conversation piece. That's really what it comes down to. But some ideas that are shared are ones that I've never considered or in a, delivered in a way that are slightly off kilter to what I think. And it's refreshing and it's invigorating. I just feel good about being a Satanist after every single one of those damn meetings. Every one of them. So it's really nice. Satanic Sausage Fest or not, it's a good time. Uh, how you doing, Jameson? All right, I'll call you Chuck. That's easier, man. <laughs> Question, are, am I familiar with Maxwell Maltz and Psycho-Cybernetics? I am not familiar with that at all. I will have to check that out. Interesting. Okay. All right. Work like a government mule. <laughs> you had someone call Levain Satanism the aesthetic kind thoughts? Well, it is all about aesthetics. Like, you need aesthetics to be a Satanist. It's, it's just integral to you using lesser magic in the real world, right? So, I think that's fair. I mean, the doctor connected it with the Adams family. You know, this sort of, like, weird, obscure not quite, you know, your average household type of person, you know, a little off kilter. Maybe they like things that are a little out of date. Um, and that has everything to do with aesthetics and perspective, right? So I definitely think that. Uh, what's up, Evan? How you doing? What do I think of Black Craft Cult clothing brand? I don't know anything about it, dude. Productive or counterproductive, it seems to have very satanic prem or valid satanic premise. When you see someone wearing their clothing, it seems... Well, here's the... This is the way I see it. And you can tell by the fact that I'm wearing a button-up shirt and I wear leather shoes rather than sneakers and band t-shirts. Um, I'm going to grown up. <laughs> that sounds reductive. Um, there's nothing wrong with someone wearing whatever they want to wear. Right. If you want to wear 80 bracelets and rings and necklaces and, you know, just like look like Satan vomited on you with all of his satanic iconography, more power to you. Do your thing. I don't care. That's you. I see it as childish, personally. I see it as first phase Satanism, personally. I know grown ass adults who are 
way past first phase Satanism and applying Satanism to their lives effectively that still dress like that. So it's not like it, it precludes you from being successful in life. Not at all. It's just not my style. I dress very mundane and sort of, you know, you can argue plain and boring. But that's how I roll. You know, that's, that's just me. So it comes to clothing companies that want to share those images and, and put them out there. I'm glad they're there. I mean, if, if you can make a buck on Satan, fucking make a buck. I'm not going to shame you. Um, it's just not my bag. You know, I like the, the photo of Anton LaVey with his magic circle where they were all done up in suits and ties that Magister Nadramia, Magister Nadramia shared, um, years ago i think now but it's on their website but it's just like this is what satanism is it's not the the cloaks and it's you know it's not the sigil of baphomet it's individuals using the religion in their real life productively they look like professionals because they are professionals like that's maya image of satanism and certainly of the church of satan not metal t-shirts or you know like i saw <laughs> i was coming back from a friend's uh tattoo parlor yesterday and this dude rode up on a motorcycle right next to me on this um, speed bike and on the back of his t-shirt it said jesus is a cunt <laughs> which i love as a saying on the back of a t-shirt but i would never wear it and i would never associate that with a satanist you know, in the same way that you may have, uh, um, um, oh, what is that metal band that, that, um, damn it. I don't know. There's, there's a standing metal band that I can't think of right now, but I, you just wear their t-shirt and I wouldn't think of you as a Satanist. I would think of you as a metal fan, not a Satanist, you know, Satanists, you wouldn't be able to tell that they're Satanists. That's how I see it. So to answer your question, more power to whoever wants to do it. I, you know, that's great. Um, I won't buy anything from him because I don't give a fuck. All right. You always found that being able to discuss a book with other thoughtful individuals makes the process of reading that much better. I totally agree with you, Jeff. Totally agree. Levain Satanism is redundant. No, you're right. <laughs> it's totally redundant. What do you think of the... Oh, <clears throat> Sad guy pulled over on the side of the road today in an orange convertible with orange on orange, and he was wearing an orange hat and clothes. Literally everything orange. All right, that I can't I can't get on board with live and let live with that. That's that's a fashion faux pas right there. Just here's something that I don't know if it was because I was raised by women or maybe that's it, Marty. How you doing, man? Um, I don't know what it is, but you got to have a sense of style. You have to know you're not going to wear, you're not going to look like a, a, a creamsicle walking out of your house. Just don't do it. Don't do it. I, I see people with like Bermuda shorts and a, like a polo shirt, you know, like a, a short sleeve collared shirt with like two buttons here and like a little animal or something tucked into Bermuda shorts, like long workout shorts. What are you doing? fuck are you doing <laughs> you never had someone tell you don't leave the house looking like that like you need some fashion sense something like just because you do it does not make it okay <laughs> it certainly doesn't make it right and there shouldn't be fashion police 
but sometimes there should be fashion police. You know, you'll never go wrong with slacks, a button up shirt and some leather shoes. You'll never go wrong. So why test the waters? If you don't know what you're doing, go classic. That's, that's all I'm saying. Orange on orange. It's the same thing with people wearing camo, like just camo everything. Or I see this a lot in Utah because it's Utah, but it's always like the ball cap. Um, and it's just like, uh, camo or USA print, like like the flag print shirts and shorts and shoes. Like, what, what are you, what are you trying to say? What, what's wrong with you? You don't look like a patriotic anything. You look like a douchebag is what you look like. Most Utahns <laughs> look like douchebags. You can point to someone in Utah and you're like, that is Utah right there. I'm going to start taking pictures. I'm going to start posting them because it's bad. It is bad. Utahns are fucking horrible. Uh, LeVay did have an aesthetic values. He disliked anything. He wasn't attractive or ugly. Well, he certainly had aesthetics, a sense of aesthetics, but his was 1920s gangster style. Like that's, that's where his heart was. Shall come down to having pride in oneself and looking the part. Yeah. And here's the thing. If you don't know if it looks good or not, you can actually look online and search men's fashion and put in the era that you're going for. And you're going to see examples of good looking men wearing clothing that looks good. And if you're wearing something that is in stark contrast to that, you're probably on the wrong side. <laughs> the wrong side of things. And it's a cop-out just wearing t-shirt and jeans all the time, even though I do it. Um, it is a cop-out. You know, if you're just going out because you need milk from the store, well, then whatever. Do what you want. Except, here's one thing, one rule I will never break. And I don't think anyone else should ever break either. I think it's a sin. I think it should be punishable on death. I think we should all be carrying around sidearms. And if we see it in the wild, we should be able to put that person down for doing it. And here it is. Sweatpants in public. Never. Never. Never wear sweatpants in public. I don't know why sweatpants exist. I think it's... It, sweatpants are literally the devil's clothing. So I don't know. Take that as a good thing if you want. <laughs> it's, it was a joke on humanity when sweatpants came out. It was like, no one's going to wear these. And then you see people just everywhere in sweatpants. And there's nothing less sexy than a girl in sweatpants. Ugh. Have you ever tried to look at a butt in sweatpants? It's like super saggy, like way down below. Oh, God, it's the worst. Ugh. And you have to use every bit of your imagination to try to break down the sweatpants to imagine anything under it. I don't know about this. This may just be a, a statement about me as a person. When I look at someone, I imagine them naked. I, I've always done it. I just, I look at how their body works under the clothing and I just imagine it. I don't get turned on by it usually. It's just like, oh, okay, that's what they're sporting. Like, that's just, you know, how I roll. Sweatpants, it's like a fucking riddle. I don't, I don't know what it is. It could be Night of Living Dead under there. I don't know. And I don't like not knowing. <laughs> oh, sweatpants. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one, Jeff. I'm glad. Oh. Yoga words, yoga pants are pretty bad too. If you're not coming from a yoga session, you should not be in yoga pants. Any, a workout. If you're not coming from or going to the gym, why are you wearing them? You're not impressing people. They're just looking at you like you're trying to look good. 
which means that you don't look good and you have to wear these pants in order to look good. You're not doing yourself any favors. Oh, dog. We're going to have to fight. It's <laughs> funny. I'm a total anti-sweatpants person. It drives me crazy. Leotards. No way are leotards back. No way. I remember in the 80s where you wore like multiple socks. So you could have like the buildup of socks, like layers of like like partially rolled down socks. That was a thing for a long time. Girls did it all the time. Fucking fashion's so weird in the 80s. The 80s was like a black hole of fashion. And it's weird to see some of those trends coming back because you're not supposed to come out of a black hole. Once you hit that event horizon, it's supposed to be a one way. But apparently hawking radiation works for 80s fashion too because <laughs> some shit's flying back out. And it's not right. <laughs> it should have been spaghettified. Damn it. All right. Is it time yet? What time we got? Oh, it's past time. Let's start the show. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world. And I'm your host, Reverend Campbell. It's great to have you. It is August numero uno, the first. And i uh, got a great show for you this week. In The Devil's Advocate, when does studying prevent living Satanism? We're going to have a bit of a conversation about this. Again, this came from book club member. Uh, Infernal Informant, The Last Children of Down Syndrome. This came from one of you great listeners that sends me articles all the time. And it's a good one. We're going to ask some tough questions. And in the creature feature, I want to talk about creative challenges. I, I had an experience this past week that, well, we'll get into it. Creative challenges. They're challenges for a reason in the name. All right. So at the top of the show, I uh, didn't have a show last week. I had friends over and we had a board game day and it was great, but I had to be able to, you know, help my wife everything ready for the people. Sorry, I'm all gross, like, like burping and stuff. Um, we had to have, you know, clean the house and everything. And I just didn't have time to put a show together. So I had to cancel book club too. So last week was a bust next week. I've got man camp, which is me and a couple of my close friends. We're driving out to the Stanley hotel in Colorado. We're going to do the ghost tour that night. We're going to crawl around the maze. Um, the, the little maze thing they have out in the front the little garden maze. I don't know what you call it. Uh, and we're going to go hiking in the Rocky Mountains and we're going to have a good weekend. So don't expect me next week because I will not be conscious, <laughs> probably. <laughs> um, and that goes for book club too next week. It's not going to happen. But the following week, everything should be back to normal and the cycle should, uh, the cycle should begin anew. The cycle. Um, today is my friend's birthday. Satanist Cameron John. And you probably don't want me to say this, but happy birthday to you. Uh, 
this human being is arguably one of my favorite human beings on the planet right now. <laughs> Could change tomorrow. I don't know. He's coming on Man Camp, so it may change then. No, I love Cameron. He's the just a solid fucking person. And the fact that uh, he's lived another year... <laughs> Because that's why we celebrate birthdays. Because you've just successfully lived one more year on the planet. Congratulations. <laughs> Happy birthday, Cameron. I uh, love you, man. All right. Man Camp is awesome. I wish I could have more people come to Man Camp. We actually had a bunch that just dropped out. They couldn't make it. You know, sometimes it gets too expensive. Sometimes life gets in the way and they just can't really make it. But the group we got going this year is really just a solid group of misfits and miscreants. There's going to be shenanigans. We're going to be dressing up and going to dinner in like full-on suits. It's going to be a good time. We're going to have a good time. And of course, it's Colorado, so you have decriminalized stuff and you have legal stuff there. So it's going to be a good time. <laughs> Probably going to get thrown out of the hotel. It's a fancy schwanky hotel. Um, but uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. All right, um, let's start the show. Let's do a little devil's advocate. Happy belated birthday, William. I did not know it was just recent. All right, all right. Let me get an image up here, and we're going to start and have some fun. So I can't remember the exact email reference, but one of the, again, one of the book club members, um, he's actually been on the show before too. Um, he was like uh, talking about this idea that we focus as Satanists on study, not worship. But at some point, we need to stop the studying so that we can actually apply and live the life, right? And some people don't really get past that studying. And you can argue that, you know, phases of Satanism, they focus on studying over other phases of Satanism and, and practically applying um, the religion. But people do get bogged down in the study. And I, I feel a little bit responsible for some of that because I do these shows and we talk about Satanism every week, traditionally. And so I kind of feel maybe I'm part of the problem. <laughs> I'm not sure how I can justify continually doing this show when, you know, I say that you shouldn't be studying all the time. Like, of course, you need to reinforce ideas. You need to understand the expressions of Satanism at different stages in your life because it does, it does glean new meanings. As you go back to it. But you live your life in a library, you're not out there in the real world. If you live your life online in echo chambers, you're not out there in the real world. Okay, so there is something to be said for um, about for, uh, getting together with other Satanists and talking about Satanism. That, and we just talked about it this week in the book club where, um, you know, the the grotto system was abolished originally, but then it came back um, as a way for people to connect with each other. And we started talking about how the religion of Satanism, 
in arguably any organization, whether it's a, a political or a religious organization, if you stumble across it and you connect with it, well, then you want to talk with it with other people. You want to share that idea. And what most people experience is they get all hyped up and excited about it and they talk with non-Satanists about it. And all they're doing is arguing what Satanism actually is versus what the person thinks it is. And it gets them in trouble more often than not. You know, usually with parents, if you, you know, discover it when you're younger. And so you want to avoid that. And the only way to avoid that is just by talking to other Satanists about the religion. And there's nothing wrong with that until there becomes something wrong with that. And that usually comes down in a grotto system with a cult of personality and someone telling you you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong and you have to do it my way. Or, you, you know, you get these little infighting moments because we're our own gods and we're going to spread our ideas out there. And if you don't agree with it, you've got to be wrong because I'm God. Eh? Right? So you get these personality conflict fights that intrinsically mean that grottos can't last. And so the grotto system was abolished again. Um, but we as Satanists still love to get together and talk about this religion. There's something about it that just... It feels right. If you're a fan of anything, you want to, that's why there's conventions. You want to get together with others that are in your fandom, whatever that is, and you want to share your passion for it. Satanism is no different, but we need to make sure that that is not the only expression of the religion that we're connecting with. Because ultimately, this religion is unlike any other in that it provides you with a set of tools that you're supposed to be using in application to real life goals and realization of successes in real life, not just living in that library. And yet, anecdotally, you see a lot of Satanists just living in the library and thinking that that's good enough. It's not. And you're doing it wrong. <laughs> All right, there is a fine line between this and developing a community, of course. Like, is this representation of this show talking about Satanism, talking about um, you know social political events and news events and entertainment and stuff through a satanic lens and stuff? Um, clearly, there's a difference between just having this weird grotto-like echo chamber, uh, and that's the way I justify this show. <laughs> so whether it's real or not, I don't know. Um, but. You know, I've, I've continually discussed how Satanists online need to measure their successes uh, outside, you know, not against other Satanists, but outside in their own industries using different measurements of success than other Satanists, because ultimately that's a degeneration. That's um, you start you start lowering the standard, ironically, because we are supposed to have such a high standard, but. I've seen some shit. <laughs> so have you. So we need to be able to raise the bar on what we perceive success as being. And the only way to do that is to stop living in these little echo chambers that we find ourselves in and start going out into industries that we're living our real lives in and finding mastery in those, not just amongst each other. I may be... I may be a great um, illustrator amongst Satanists, but that's this percentage of the world. We have 
a whole wide world to compare ourselves to if you're going to compare yourself with anyone. Why would you compare yourself to a 0.1% of the population and consider that good when you're not making any money in the real world? You're not living your life out there. Broaden your horizons is all. Um, step away from Satanism as a religion, as a form of religious study, and focus on your actual lives. Study, not worship, means more than just study. Study, not worship, is the foundation in order to propel you into real-world action, not to wallow in just that. Uh, you can end up finding yourself worshiping the religion itself as a Satanist rather than worshiping yourself. All right? Don't worship the religion. Worship yourself. The actions that you take informed by the religion. Studying the religion to understand the tools it provides for your use and then getting out into the real world and then using those tools. And here's, here's the, the worst part about this. Um, I need to be delicate here because this can hurt feelings or be misconstrued. Um, there are a number of Satanists who exclusively make money off of other Satanists. And like I said before, you make a buck, I'm not going to shame you. You know, if you can make money off of this religion, then do your thing. But that shouldn't be where your focus is. Again, this religion is a tiny fraction of the population. So if you actually want to make substantial money, if your goal is to make money, exclusively catering to one tiny little sub-subculture is not going to be the way to do it. You need to expand out. And so you have tons of organizations, organizations is a loose word, you have tons of individuals building businesses based around Satanism, and some of them are going to be successful for a while, and some of them are going to stand the test of time, but ultimately, you are casting your net out in a tiny, tiny pond, and you're going to run dry. Um you got to branch out past Satanists. You need to stop worshiping this religion in the application of your real world life, which is the point of the religion. Break out of the satanic bubble that you cultivate around you, because ultimately that's what we do as Satanists more often than not. We fashion this identity, this satanic identity about ourselves, and we become lost in that identity. You need to step outside of it and say, look, I am a Satanist, but I am not Satanism. The religion does not define who I am. It informs the actions I take in the real world. And there's a huge difference there. And anecdotally, you can look at tons of Satanists and see where they stand on that line by the, the actions that they take in life, how they present themselves online and offline. It's easy to draw the line. And you can see real-world success, and you can see satanic success. There should never be satanic success. That should not be something that you strive for. That should not be something that you aspire to. 
you have to think bigger than just other Satanists. Think of the industry that you're working in. Think of the industry you want to work in. That's where you should be putting your focus. On you succeeding there. Not you succeeding amongst other Satanists. And so, you know, when I see new projects, I just don't want to talk about them. Because it's catering to this idea of a community that is antithetical to Satanism. Everything that I do here is trying to focus on real-world application of this religion, not, which is funny because this podcast is just a static podcast, um, not just huddling around together, rubbing elbows, and saying, Hail Satan. That's fun sometimes, but that's not life. That's entertainment. you got to understand the difference. So what do you think, Kicker? There's more to study part than just studying Satanism. Psychology, history, philosophy, mathematics, etc. All should be studied, then applied and discarded as necessary. Balance. Absolutely. Very true, Jeff. As Satanists, we indulge in a life-loving religion. That's what and who we are. Yeah, Jameson, that is what it's supposed to be. But I think we can all easily identify those of our own ilk that seem to forget the life part of it. Uh, using the philosophy for professional purposes is great. Saw some of your past videos on the subject. Definitely helped out. Thanks for shitting on my point, Evan. <laughs> no. Um, using the philosophy for professional purposes outside in the real world. Yes. Using philosophy for um, professional purposes inside this tent bubble. In my opinion, no. Um, I know you meant the outside part of it. I uh, haven't purchased the Church of Satan membership fee because you don't uh, feel like you've become successful enough in your own endeavors and goals to feel worthy enough to become a true Satanist. Uh, I want to put a pin in that, Anthony, because being a member of the Church of Satan does not make you a true Satanist. Reading the standard Bible, connecting with the religion, and applying Satanism in your life makes you a true Satanist. Joining an organization that defines and defends the religion that you connect with has nothing to do with you being a true Satanist or not. It's a nice nod to your cap. It's a nice, you know, act of respect. But you're a true Satanist if you connect and apply. And that's it. Uh, the human condition is a contradiction. We have contradictions as a religion as well. Like being anti-authority and live and let live without having our magic based on imposing our will on others. Yeah, we were just talking about this a bit, James. Um, we can't break free of contradictions. This is a, 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 a human condition, right? The best we can do is navigate through the maze of contradictions as best as we possibly can. Because ultimately, what we're fighting against is our lizard brain. It's the reason we survived as a species. We huddled together in packs. We went along with, you know, stronger personalities or stronger individuals, physically stronger individuals, because it meant our survival. But we're in a time in our species where that doesn't make as much sense anymore. And so we start breaking free of those norms and those ideas. Um, but we struggle with it, even as Satanists, even as individuals. You know, Western philosophy is based around an, the individual. Satanism as a religion is based around the individual. But that's very contradictory to our own existence as a species. And so it is something that we're going to have to continually struggle with. Um, because it's just our inherent nature to go along. 
But you can argue that's what makes Satanists so special, so different, is that we have already done the part of breaking off that need to go along, to be a part of it. Even if we find ourselves doing the same thing within the religion that we connect with. So it is a very interesting contradiction. Uh, on this boat, you found some interesting people and information. It's nice to have others to discuss, but you've always... Uh, you were always this even before you knew... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Satanism didn't help you with your skills in mechanics. Machinist at work, running machines, but when you became management afterwards, you were able to apply the philosophy to many matters. Yeah, I think that's a, a great application. But I would argue that, you know, be, being the best at what you do, whether it's a machinist or a mechanic or anything that you do, that's inherently satanic because you're actively trying to be the best at it. You're studying it. You know, you're, you're working at honing your own skills in craft into being the best and that inherently is satanic you understand and appreciate some of the business that cater to satanists or cos members um you kind of did it with the legion however you can't imagine anyone solely making a living that way yeah you're right and i don't think anyone does and so it's a little hyperbolic of a point that i was making um and i was framing it in a way so that i could make the argument but to your point i don't know anyone that does you know, so should I have even brought it up? I don't know. Um, that's what you're finding out now, William. Uh, reading people is very helpful in managing them. Oh, for sure. You've been applying the philosophy of Satanism for almost 30 years. And it's only recently that you've acquired your membership. Oh, congratulations to you, Jameson. Yeah. Um, I, I just find it so interesting because you can get bogged down in this idea of study. Right. And I don't know anyone who does, but it's an idea that I could see, you know, coming to fruition in someone's life um, where if you hit someone over the head enough saying Satanism is about study and not worship, then you start only studying and you forget the application part of the religion, which is, again, I'm going to hammer your head with this idea over and over again. It's the most important part of this religion. It's the point of this religion is the application part of it. But, you know, we also hit our head over question all things. And I think you can equally find yourself locked in that aspect of this religion. You know, again, I guess it depends on the, just the individual type of person that you are. But questioning all things can easily lead to conspiracy, you know? And, and if you don't know where to stop that line and just accept reality or the reality that you craft for yourself, then you can easily lose yourself in questioning. And so, you know, being able to find those comfortable lines between studying and questioning uh, without preventing yourself from exploring them is the most important part, I think. Uh, one of the most important hurdles that we have to get over is saying this. Because ultimately, you know, we, we do get to a point where, and this is just me reflecting here, so maybe you don't, um, where you get into this religion and you want to talk about it, you want to share it, you want to communicate different ideas within it, how do different people apply it in different ways, what are they getting out of it, and maybe is there something that you can learn out of their life experience? Um, 
and you get so hyper-focused and then, you know, like an artifact comes out and you're like, ooh, I need to start collecting artifacts, satanic artifacts, because that's inspiring. That's, that's instilling this new sense of connection with this religion. And you start to become a fan of the religion rather than an active member of the religion, you know? You start worshiping the religion itself rather than applying it in your real life. And I know I'm not the only one that connects with that idea. And certainly that's something that we need to be able to break free from. So don't worship the religion. Worship yourself through applying the religion. All right. Sometimes you have to look up from the book and drive your car. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully you're not reading the book in the car. Um, you're just over here hoarding MTG cards. <laughs> All right, so that's that's all I really wanted to talk about. It. Um, let's do a little uh, infernal informant. Have some difficult conversations. I'm so glad that um, you guys are out there because you, you feed the conversations that I have in a really beautiful way. And this is just another example of articles that I never would have come across if it wasn't for audience members like you guys. This is from The Atlantic, The Last Children. Oh, shit. Sorry. Got to do glasses getting old. Failed Hansen, a 54-year-old school teacher, heads Lansforningen Down Syndrome, or the National Down Syndrome Association in Denmark, and she herself has an 18-year-old son, Carl Emil, with Down Syndrome. Once Failed Hansen remembers, uh, it was a couple who had uh, wanted for their prenatal, uh, who had waited for their prenatal screening to come back normal before announcing the pregnancy to friends and family. Quote, we wanted to wait, they told their loved ones, because if it had Down syndrome, they would have had an abortion. They called Failed Hansen after their daughter was born, with slanted eyes, a flattened nose, and most unmistakably, the extra copy of chromosome 21 that defines Down syndrome. They were afraid their friends and family would now think that they didn't love their daughter, so heavy uh, are the moral judgments that accompany wanting or not wanting to bring a child with a disability into the world. In 2004, Denmark became one of the first countries in the world to offer prenatal Down syndrome screening to every pregnant woman regardless of age or other risk factors. Nearly all expecting mothers chose to take the test. Of those who got a Down syndrome diagnosis, more than 95% chose to abort. Denmark is not, on its surface, particularly hostile to disability. People with Down syndrome are entitled to health care, education, even money for special shoes that fit their wider, more flexible feet. If you ask Danes about the syndrome, they're likely to bring up Morton and Peter, two friends with Down syndrome who starred in popular TV programs where they cracked jokes and dissected soccer games. Yet a gulf seems to separate the publicly expressed attitudes and the private decisions. 
Since universal screenings were introduced, the number of children born with Down syndrome has fallen sharply. In 2019, only 18 were born in the entire country, compared to about 6,000 children with Down syndrome born in the U.S. each year. Failed Hansen is the, in the strange position of leading an organization likely to have fewer and fewer new members. The goal of her conversations with expecting parents, she says, is not to sway them against abortion. She fully supports a woman's right to choose. These conversations are meant to fill in the texture of daily life, missing both from the well-meaning cliché that people with Down syndrome are always happy, and from the litany of possible symptoms provided by doctors upon diagnosis. Intellectual disability, low muscle tone, heart defects, gastrointestinal defects, immune disorders, arthritis, obesity, leukemia, and dementia. These parents come to Failed Hansen because they are faced with a choice, one made possibly by technology that peers at the DNA of an unborn child. Down syndrome is frequently called the canary in the coal mine for selective reproduction. It was once the first genetic condition to be routinely screened for in utero, and it remains the most morally troubling because it is among the least severe. It's very much compatible with life, even a long and happy life. The forces of scientific progress are now marching toward ever more testing to detect ever more genetic conditions. Recent advances in genetics provoke anxieties about a future where parents choose what kind of child to have or not have. But the hypothetical future is already here. It's been here for an entire generation. The decisions parents make after prenatal testing are private and individual ones. But when the decisions so overwhelmingly swing one way to abort, it does seem to reflect something more. An entire society's judgment about the lives of people with Down syndrome. In wealthy countries, it seems to be at once the best and the worst time for Down syndrome. Better health care and more than doubled life expectancy. Better access to education means most children with Down syndrome will learn to read and write. Few people speak publicly about wanting to eliminate Down syndrome. Yet, individual choices are adding up to something very close to that. The medical field has also been grappling with its ability to offer this power. If no one with Down syndrome had ever existed or would ever exist, is that a terrible thing? I don't know, says Laura Hersher, a genetic counselor and the director of student research at Sarah Lawrence College. If you take the health complications linked to Down syndrome, such as increased likelihood of early onset Alzheimer's, leukemia, and heart defects, she told me, I don't think anyone would argue that those are good things to eliminate. But she went on. If our world didn't have people with special needs and these vulnerabilities, she asked, would we be missing a part of our humanity? The word eugenics today evokes images that are specific and heinous. Forced sterilization of the feeble-minded in the early 20th century America, which in turn inspired the racial hygiene of the Nazis, who gassed or otherwise killed tens of thousands of people with disabilities, many of them children, but eugenics was once a mainstream scientific pursuit, and eugenicists believe that they were bettering humanity. Denmark, too, drew inspiration from the U.S. and has passed a sterilization law in 1929. Over the next 21 years, 5,940 people were sterilized in Denmark, the majority because they were mentally retarded. Those who resisted sterilization 
or threatened with institutionalization. David Wasserman, a bioethicist of the U.S. National Institute of Health, who, along with his collaborator Adrian Ash, has written some of the most poignant critiques of selective abortion. Uh, Ash died in 2013. They argued that prenatal testing has the effect of reducing an unborn child to a single aspect. Down syndrome, for example. And making parents judge that child's life on that aspect alone. Wasserman told me he didn't think that most parents would make these decisions. Uh, he didn't think that the parents who are making the decisions are seeking perfection. Rather, he said, there's a profound risk aversion that they're seeking. On one hand, he saw the problems. And on the other hand, he was perfect. It took four months for him to get diagnosed with Down syndrome. He's six now and he cannot speak. It frustrates him, his mother says. He fights with his brother and sister. He bites because he cannot express himself. This is just so many times, and you never feel safe around him. His mother's experience is not representative of all children with Down syndrome. Lack of impulse control is common, but violence is not. Her point was that the image of a happy-go-lucky child so often featured in the media is not always representative either. She wouldn't have chosen this life. We would have asked if an abortion, uh, for an abortion if we knew about it, she said. Of course, it's shameful that she says these things. She loves her child because how can a mother not love their child? But you love a person that hits you and bites you? If you have a husband that bites you, you can say goodbye. But if you have a child that hits you, you can't do anything. You can't just say, I don't want to be in a relationship because it's your child. To have a child is to begin a relationship that you cannot sever. It's supported, uh, it's supposed to be unconditional, which is perhaps what most troubles us about selective abortion. It's an admission that the relationship can in fact be conditional. All right, this is a difficult conversation because again, they're distilling down an entire life to a extra chromosome when it comes down to it to a defect if we're and, and we're seeing it happening if it is such a big choice that people are making again 16 in denmark born with um uh, down syndrome the rest aborted compared to 6,000 in the u.s if the u.s offered that option to every parent and every expectant mother had the decision, do I abort it or do I have this child? I think we would be in the exact same place that Denmark is. The majority of people would choose to abort. We would argue quality of life. We would uh, argue uh, the, the pressures put on the individual parent. I think most people become parents because they want to have a legacy. They want to create life and share in that life growth experience. But it can be tough. And if there's disabilities involved, lifelong, you, you, as a parent, we think of that, that typical version of parenting. 18, then they're on their own. But if you have a child that has a disability, it could be living with you for the, your whole life. So you're not raising a child and letting it go off. You're a caregiver your whole life. Is that something that you would choose given the opportunity? And it seems that society has said, no, I would choose to abort that child. 
Now, I don't think there's anything sacred about life itself. So the idea of abortion, I think, is a good thing. I think women should have the right to decide whether or not they devote their entire lives to something or not. They should have the right to say, this was an accident, or this was unintended, or I simply do not want it right now, so I'm going to stop it. I don't believe that there's a precious soul in every single uterus little sperm-infected egg that is going to grow into a creature of special substance. That's fucking fairy tales. We're human beings. We're just like every other species. We reproduce and we create. The th difference is, is that we have consciousness in a different manner that we understand than other creatures. Again, they may. We just don't understand it yet. And so, yeah, we make these tough decisions every single day. But where do you draw that line? Right? I'm all for eugenics. I'm all for deciding how to move forward with your own life and deciding who you want to partner with and whether or not you want offspring from a particular person or not. Right? Eugenics is defined as the practice or advocacy of improving the human species by selectively mating people with specific desired hereditary traits. What do you think the dating process is? You're selectively choosing who you want to mate with. And ultimately, if you have offspring, those offspring are going to then help define the species moving forward. So you're choosing your best compatible mate through that process. You are practicing eugenics through that choice. Otherwise, you'd just fuck anything and just have whatever babies and we would be like, you know, fucking rat, rabbits. Um, let's not do this because it's a slippery slope. It's the same saying we have no common sense and, will, and willpower. Um, I think there's a, a truth in this line of quality of life argument. Um, I've said it before on the show, my wife and I, when we first got pregnant, we were 18 years old. We were 18 years old and we were just stupid kids. We didn't, I didn't have a profession. I, we had no prospects. And so we made the decision to have an abortion. And I don't think that there's a special little soul that was denied an opportunity at life because of that decision. It was a difficult decision that we still think about to this day, but quality of life was the number one line on why we did it. We did not think that we were capable of being responsible adults and the child would not, it would suffer because we were still children. And so we made the decision. Everyone's going to fall in that line in their own different way, if at all. But we felt it was the right and still think this was the right decision to make. Now, if we knew that one of our later children had Down syndrome, we probably would have made the same decision to abort the child. Again, I would have used the quality of life or the, the um, requirement, the taxing requirement on me as a parent, I would not have been prepared for. And I would have made that choice again. And it's not an easy thing to admit because you want to think that you would, as an adult, as a parent, be prepared for whatever child that you ended up having. But no, no, we test for defects. And if, you know, if it would have been born with any other defect um, that, you know, would have 
impacted our life and its life substantially, I probably would have chosen to abort it then too. And does that make me callous? Maybe. Pragmatic? I'd like to think so. And so that's all these other Danish parents are doing. They're weighing pros and cons and saying that I don't want to have a child with this. Now, let's extrapolate that out. Because they're already extrapolating it out. They, 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 qualify, they, they test for different genetic defects than just Down syndrome. And if we're already making these decisions, how can we say that they're bad? If you have a child with significant birth defects and you identify it early enough, I don't think it's a bad thing to choose not to have that child. And certainly, I'm not alone in that decision, right? But again, extrapolate it out. Um, if we could isolate an alcoholism genetic predisposition, would some parents choose to not have that baby? It sounds ridiculous on the surface, but yeah, some people would say, I would rather not have an alcoholic kid or a drug addicted kid. So I'm just going to abort this one and we'll try again for the next one. What if it's, if you could isolate a homosexual or transsexual gene, would there be some parents that would decide not to have that child because it was homosexual or transsexual? If you could isolate that. Yeah. Without a doubt, some people would. We have bigots alive today that are anti-homosexual, anti-trans. So if those people got pregnant, could identify that their kid was going to be like that, religious people, same thing. They would deny that life too. Even though they would say they're you know, sending it back to God or whatever, they would justify it in some way. I think it's a good thing that we can make these decisions. But I may be alone here. I mean, it even is so reductive as to be just, again, part of what human beings do. We tailor our environments to our liking. And this is reductive, but the point is there. Our lawns, for fuck's sake. We, we have made this decision that grass is the ideal form. And so we shift the environment. We completely alter and change it. We get rid of weeds that were actually used for medicinal purposes, food purposes, and we've called them weeds and we eradicate them simply because our tastes have changed, right? We have the luxury of that choice. In the same way that science and technology has given us the luxury to choose and identify early enough whether or not our children are going to have birth defects or not. And we can choose whether or not to have those children. We decide the environments that we're going to surround ourselves in. We make those choices. As human beings, we, we manipulate our world more than any other species. I mean, we're clearly manipulating the world that we're in right now so much as to destroy it. Sorry, um, dog, some of these are coming up as blocked. So I'm trying to unlock them here as they come up. Um, okay, so if my parents found out that I would have asthma and that I could die because I couldn't breathe, um, if they were in a position in their life where they couldn't afford medication, they couldn't make that, you know, that, that sacrifice in order to make me have a, a quality of life and live, would they have decided to abort me? Maybe. I don't know. 
Would other people make that decision? Yeah. Yeah, someone would. Totally. Yeah. Human beings are callous. And that's what we do. Does it make it right or just? Maybe. Maybe not. Should you just roll the dice every time and have no choice in it? Just let the chaos of the universe define what your kids are going to be and just be okay with that? Or if you're given the chance, would you not dig in and try to figure it out? Well, society has said that, yeah, we're going to dig in. We're going to try to figure it out. We're going to make choices. And it's the same thing. Again, reductive, but the point is there. My mom says she wants a dog, but she doesn't want a dog that sheds too much. And she doesn't want a dog that's going to be too needy. And she doesn't want a dog that's going to need too much exercise. And she wants an animal companion, but she wants a very specific animal companion. You talk to any would-be parent that's expecting. What do you want out of your kid? The parent that says, I just want a child and to have them express themselves in their own way. That may be a healthy way of looking at being a parent, but it's not the normal average way of looking at being a parent. Most parents say, I want a, a, a football star or, you know, I want a creative, intelligent child. I want them to be walking sooner than all the other kids, talking sooner than the other kids, beating all the other kids in their, their tests at school. That's just what most human beings want. They want the best, the, the peak of perfection. When you put it in the eugenics context, they'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to, I don't want to stop any, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put away any potential child because they're not the best, but I want mine to be the best. That's the reality of it. Um, <laughs> human beings manipulate our worlds around us, including ourselves. Is it a shock to think that we do that with our kids too? No, of course. Of course we will. We do it with everything. Why would we not do it with our kids? Is there ever a line we shouldn't cross with that? I mean, we may end up in a Gattaca situation as society. We may end up in some, you know, post-apocalyptic world because of too much meddling. But that's what humans do. What do you guys say? I'm sorry, there's so many comments coming through here. I'm, I'm trying to rewind so I can see some of them. You found yourself on this boat. Uh, you got there just by being who you are. When you leaned over the side, you saw the name of the boat was... Oh, damn it. You're not talking about that. <laughs> sorry. Uh, let's see. Christian's down here. So sickeningly proud of themselves for having the Downs kids. It makes you mad. People matter less than their made-up bullshit beliefs. That's true. It's not the a job of children to sacrifice for the concept of humanity, right? And Zachary says straight up, Gattaca. When you take nature into your own hands, you have the responsibility to align with the same nature. Mother bears eat their cubs. We're just not having them. Yeah. Is this not the purpose of eugenics? Yes, it is. Absolutely. 100%. Um, it's strange that our culture sees eugenics as a negative thing. Because we all practice it every single day. You love, I mean, that's stratification. Uh, you love how you pick these broad and serious conversations with hundreds, if not thousands of facets and shove them in your quick segment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, third side real quick. If the strongest species is to survive, would it not be able to do it by itself? Elsewise, would you not be superior? 
All right, that's referencing. It's not the purpose of eugenics to produce. Oh. Um, if the stronger species is to survive, would it not be able to do it by itself? Would not making the scientific advancements in order to make that decision be the strength of that species? Would, not that, would that not be an expression of the might of that species? I would argue that it is. Um, being able to have the choice, the luxury of having a child that's going to be a burden on you and your society versus having a child that's going to be a productive member of the society. I mean, we all want to say it shouldn't matter and I don't care because I love my child. But you just listened to me talk to you about a, a mother who was like, if I knew that my child was going to have Down syndrome, I would have aborted him. And I still love the child and I feel shitty for saying it. But I don't think she's alone. I think it's a normal way and healthy way of looking at the reality of the life that she's living. You know, she's stuck in that. Common sense is not fucking hard. Genetically stomping down is not going to have the same effect as genetically stopping blonde-haired people or people with green eyes. Um, you can stop whenever you want to, <laughs> James. The human animal has always had the superior ability to adapt to its environment. The adaptation has now evolved into science and the ability to assist and nudge the survival of our species. Yeah. It's weird because I feel like I have to make this justification for the perspective. And I don't know if that's just because I'm communicating in this open forum like this. But even me, I have to say, you know, I would totally abort that child. My wife and I had this conversation earlier this morning when I was talking about this article. I would have a hard time figuring where that line would be drawn for me. Um, my values say that I don't give a fuck if you, you know, who you love or how you love or how you see yourself. So if it's LGBTQ, if it's, um, that doesn't matter to me. That's not a line that I'm concerned about. So I would, I would have a kid if I knew that that would be the outcome. Addiction. I'm prone to addiction. I'm, I mean, I struggle with addictions. I, so I would not use that as a line to draw. Um, if they're born with their heart on the outside of their chest and it's, it's a percentage that they could not make it, would I choose before they were born if I knew that that was going to be the result? That's the line I would probably draw on. If, if I knew that they were going to have such a significant quality of life problem, like if, and this is terrible because I have a sister with this and I, you know, I love my sister. And so I'm glad that this was not the outcome, but spina bifida. If I had a choice and this is tough to say, I would choose not to have that child because of the difficulty that they're going to be facing because the difficulty that's going to put on me, how selfish is that? But it's true. It's a choice, you know? And th this article goes on. It's a brilliant article. Everyone should go and check it out. I'll have a link in the show notes. But the, it goes on to explain how the Down syndrome son of the mother who's running this foundation reacts to these parents who are having this, you know, conversation and how he is watching others like him not being born because they're like him. 
And you can't help but put yourself in this kid's place and think, what if it was me? You know, what if I was in his position? Do you have the ability to step outside and say, yeah, I understand why they're not wanting to have kids like me because I am difficult and challenging? Or do you say, I am just another aspect of life. Why are you eradicating my kind? Yeah, I'm difficult. Everyone's difficult. Yeah, I'm a burden on some people. Everyone's a burden on some people. What makes you better than me? Just because it's trendy? Just because you figured out how to test for it? Being able to have perspective makes it a difficult conversation to have, and it makes those choices incredibly difficult to make. Because... I think it's healthy to be able to challenge yourself by putting yourself in their place. And it makes it even more challenging and difficult and hard to have that conversation. But I think that's healthy in the long run. Um, so yeah, modern eugenics, more often called human genetic engineering, has come a long way, scientifically and ethically, and offers hope for treating many devastating genetic illnesses. I think that's a net positive. But it's easy for me to say because I'm incredibly fortunate in life. The chaos of the universe only gave me a very manageable problem, you know, with asthma. Um, the chaos of the universe and environmental factors uh, gave me a manageable disease in alcoholism. At least for me, it's manageable. Most people can't. Um, not to say that I'm better or anything. I don't want to go there. I'm just saying that I'm, I'm capable of limiting, whereas some people aren't. Um, it's tough. All right, what are you guys saying here? Newton was autistic. Type shit presumes autistic people owe us their difficult existence because they might make our lives better in some way. You disagree that they owe us that. Important and necessary choices are not supposed to be easy. If they were, they wouldn't be important and necessary choices that's necessary. Good point. Good point. Um, what would you do if you were pregnant? Scroll down, Rev. I'm at the bottom now. Um, if you're, if you are, uh, if you're having a kid and you get tested right now, and the kid has Down syndrome, are you going to have the kid? Let me know in the chat. You have Asperger's autism, Kyle. If you found out that your child that you're going to be having has Asperger's autism, would you choose to have him? <laughs> Robert, you're a couple topics behind, man. <laughs> it's tough. It's a tough decision to make. Be fortunate if you don't have to make it, but you may have to in life. And it's just something that you're going to have to come down to. Um, personally, I think it's a good choice to be able to have, no matter where you land on it. It's nice to be able to have that information. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be informed by your own life experience and what you expect out of a child, what you expect out of life about the human experience. And here's the other side of it is that 
as much as I support those choices in order to abort, I like life being chaotic. I don't want to live in a utopia. I don't want this Akumbaya world where everyone is perfect in their, their own special way and there's no disease and there's no disability and there's no, I don't want that life. I want every aspect of life so that evolution can take place. The more we meddle, the less evolution gets a chance to do the meddling. And the reason why we're here is because of evolution. And that, again, is a large topic and whether or not you agree with it, you know, we can have that conversation at a later date. But I don't think human beings know best. I think it's rare we ever get anything right. And I find humanity, the, the expression of humanity through our species is best done through chaos and disorder. Not through structural engineering. And so as much as I myself would make the choice to abort, I actually like that there are people out there that don't. Because that means life is going to be more diverse, interesting, a life worth being in. I don't know. Pick me, Robert. <laughs> um, okay, so that's all I wanted to talk about with that. We're Wow, we're... Oh, no, I started early, so we're not late. We're getting there, though. Let's, let's close out this conversation with a little creature feature. True that, Zach. Let me throw up this image and uh, this is just me sharing an experience that I had that was frustrating and fulfilling. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm an art director for an advertising agency. I came up with a creative project that I, I was presented with a creative project from a client. And when we were having our initial conversation, they already had a concept that they wanted me to execute on. So what that means is they have an idea that they want to see me create creative examples of, visual examples of this concept. It's a little bit harder than it sounds, and it requires <laughs> time and inspiration and creativity. Um, and I've been atrophying lately. You know, creativity is a muscle that if you don't work it, then you're, you lose it. You know, it's like anything. You have to continually do it. And th this pandemic has meant that a lot of our clients have stopped advertising. Um, we're, we're doing okay. We're above water. We're not losing money as a company. But we're not doing as good as we did before the pandemic. I mean, we had a best year ever in the entire 16 years that I've worked there the year before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit and it fucked everything up. So we're still above water but we're not getting all the creative projects that we used to. And so I found myself falling in this routine where I read a lot 
and I don't do a lot of creative thinking, you know? Um, and so when I was presented with this project, I kind of started panicking. I didn't really know how I was going to, I knew I was, I knew I'm capable, but I lost the confidence in myself because I hadn't done it for so long. And I just wasn't sure I was going to be delivering something that they would be proud of paying for. Cause ultimately I'm in that business where you have to like what I come up with so much that you're going to pay me for it. I'm not giving you a, a known quantity. You're hiring me because you have faith in my skill, not because I've already delivered something, right? So it's unnerving to be in that position to have to fulfill expectations every single time or you don't get paid. And not just fulfill like me expectations, you have to exceed expectations so they keep coming back. And that for me is, is very, very stressful. It's why I have all this damn gray coming into my beard. It's stressful for me. And when you don't, when you're not regularly doing it and then suddenly you're asked to do it, it, it gets really, really intimidating. And I started doubting myself. And then they said, um, you know, we need all of these executions. So we need multiple concepts in a variety of executions. So it wasn't one idea with just, you know, three executions. I had to create a whole array of these in like two days I had to do to this. Normally, you know, I'd have over a week or, or more. And so time constraints, quantity constraints, lack of inspiration and trust in my own instincts. And ultimately, I rose to the challenge and I exceeded their expectations and they were very, very happy which makes me feel okay. Um, and it, I just, I wanted to talk about this uh, creative challenges because I think in our own way, every single one of us faces these ideas, whether it's regularly getting up in the morning and exercising, you stop doing it for a while and you just lose the motivation and you just don't want to do it anymore. Um, whether it's going out and meeting and challenging yourself every day versus just sort of skating by under the radar and, and just, you know, not really putting that stress on you to overachieve, to grow more, to be a better version of you. We all sort of find ourselves at different times in our lives of just feeling like it's enough. It's okay. You know, it's good enough for now. Um, and it's, it's really important as a human being to get out of the mold of good enough. Because good enough means you're never going to be good enough. It means you're always just going to be trying to reach that minimum. And as close as you can get to it means you're still at the minimum. You're just not a, a quality human being. We're supposed to be easily beating the minimum and striving for greatness. How do you ever have a goal if good enough is enough? Whenever you're given this opportunity to shine, to prove your value, it can be intimidating. Knowing that others trust in your abilities can be terrifying. Self-doubt or, or maybe, you know, having an inferiority complex. I think that's common. 
People feel like they're just not good enough, so why should they try? I'm never going to meet it, so why should I try for it? But that's why you should strive for something greater. That's why you should put yourself out there. And what's the worst case scenario that you're going to experience? Failure. But you learn from that failure. You don't learn not to try. You learn why you failed. And you can use that as a stepping stool for the next time. And that doesn't mean you're going to win everything you try. That doesn't mean you're going to succeed in everything you try. But it means you're going to learn from every time you fail. No matter what, you will always learn. So why not try? If the worst case scenario is that you're going to learn something, why not put yourself out there? I was presented with a design challenge. I didn't agree with the premise at all. I was under pressure with time. I was under pressure with expectation. And I put myself out there and I remembered what I was good at and I executed on it. And I succeeded this time. But even if I didn't, I would have beat myself up for a while. Yeah, that's normal. That's healthy. But I would have learned from it. Challenging yourself can build self-confidence. It builds a sense of self-worth. And it actually improves what you're trying to do. And so I just, I just wanted to share this little experience uh, that I had because it felt good in the moment. But there's something greater that we can all learn from it that many of you already know. And so I'm just preaching to the choir here. But you have to... You have to put yourself out there, you know, and you may not be the best. And everyone else may see that you're not the best. But you're never going to get to be the best unless you put yourself out there. So coming home with a bruised ego, that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Feeling like you're not good enough, that's not a bad thing. That's a healthy experience. That's a healthy perspective. Because you're going to use that as a drive motivator to move forward and try to be better than what you are. This is a very satanic perspective of things. We are continually trying to be better versions of ourselves. And the only way you're going to do that is to fail. I've failed a lot in my career. And uh, I will continue to fail. There's going to be wins in there. There's going to be successes that you're going to meet. And that is what you have to do in life. Accept the failures, learn from them, and then use them as motivation to propel you to future successes. Anyway, that's what I wanted to talk about. Craving uh, process and growth and staying hungry helps. Um, getting those dopamine boosts for personal accomplishments instead of uh, phone notifications from social media. Yeah, no, it's important. Definitely feel your pain there. You constantly try to raise the bar on yourself, then beat yourself up through the whole process of doing it again. Be creative, they said. It'd be fun, they said. Yeah. I love it when people just think it's easy, you know? 
Oh, just come up with the next best thing. It's easy. Come up with the next next creative process or next creative project. It's easy. No, it takes work. <laughs> it takes stress. It takes anxiety. It takes sense of hopelessness and and just lack of self-worth. Like it it's hard. But it's important. Failure failure is a pathway to success. Evan, you are absolutely right. Um Failure is the pathway to success. I'm sorry. Fail better, as Samuel Beckett says. I like that, Greg. That's nice. Every new assignment is terrifying, but when you've failed, it's usually because of personal relations. Failing lesser magic. Interesting, Joaquin. Interesting way of uh, looking at that. Um, all right. That's all I had for the today's episode. Thank you guys for tuning in. I really appreciate you. Uh, it's weird for me missing a week. I was, I was thinking about just doing an impromptu nine cents on Monday just because I feel like I, I failed you, you guys by not having an episode um, because I, I'm generally really good with consistency. But uh, yeah, I didn't make it. I'm not perfect, guys. Sorry. <laughs> and I, I just heard like the, the flood of reactions like, yeah, no shit. You're not perfect, loser. I felt that. So I appreciate the honesty. Um, I appreciate your time and attention. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this episode of Nine Cents. I hope you enjoyed it. You can view past episodes of any of the different satanic shows uh, I put out on my website, reverendcampbell.com. If you want to learn more about Satanism or the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com, read the satanic Bible. And as I put in a comment before, no, you will not know if you're a Satanist if you have not read the satanic Bible. You may be a Satanist, but you won't know it until you've read it. If you think you're a Satanist without having read it, you may be, but you won't know. So just read it. How It's a tiny fucking book. It's tiny. It's a quick read. Do yourself a favor. Find out. And if you're not a Satanist, get the fuck out. And if you are, welcome home, baby. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Uh, I will not see you next week. Again, man camp. But the week after, we'll see you. And as a closing thought, um, Jeff, you had mentioned earlier that uh, about the Legion, the Infernal Legion, that's a good thing. That is not creating this weird herd Christian community experience that we as Satanists see as a detriment. That is work that is incredibly important, and I'm very, very impressed and proud that you're doing it. So keep it up. I think it's fantastic. And if you're a veteran, check it out. Till next time, hail Satan.